It's about to be the biggest sale the football world has ever seen. London's Chelsea FC is up for grabs. Last year, the club won the top prize in Europe, a Champions League Cup. Now, their owner is under sanctions. Roman Abramovich has just released a statement, Chelsea owner, of course, and it says this, I have decided to sell Chelsea Football Club. The announcement comes as Russian billionaires come under intensifying pressure. Roman Abramovich having his asset frozen, and that's in relation to alleged links to Vladimir Putin, which he denies. When the Russian billionaire bought Chelsea in 2003, he was a little-known name, and Chelsea a middle-of-the-road club. He was the first billionaire to buy an English club, and his unlimited spending unleashed a financial arms race. In today's Premier League, if your team doesn't have a billionaire owner, you're in the minority. The last sale of Chelsea transformed European football. So what could this sale tell us about where the game is headed next? I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. I'm talking with James Montague, who covers the politics and the money behind the sport. I'm journalist and author, author of, of The Billionaires Club, The Unstoppable Rise of Football Super Rich Owners. And yeah, lots of lots of other kind of books about strange things happening in soccer around the world. Let's start with the central character, and that is Roman Abramovich. It is a name that makes headlines today. He's a billionaire, an Israeli and Portuguese citizen. He's an oil tycoon. And of course owner of Chelsea FC. But I want to rewind about 19 years, July 2003. In a whirlwind deal, he spends 140 million pounds to buy Chelsea. What did we know about him back then? Virtually nothing. I mean, I remember I was just starting out as a journalist then and Russia was seen in a very different way as well. There was this kind of wealth and bling that was coming into Europe and this was a massive change from what we'd grown up. This was like a new, fresh, Western-looking, you know, Russians wearing Prada coming to London and he seemed to embody all of that. There was this rich, young guy just saying, look, I'm, I just, I'm interested in football and I want to buy a football club because, you know, Russians don't live very long. I assume he meant because... Kind of not not because of oligarchs getting bumped off, but because uh, the, the the age of men. But he was that's what he said. He said, you know, we, I want to have a football club and I want to enjoy my fortune. And he was, you know, very young. He was in his thirties at the time, and no one knew who he was. And you know, I spoke to uh, Trevor Birch, who's the guy at the time who was in charge of business affairs at Chelsea, and he was in the room. He made the deal mm. with with Roman Abramovich. And it was over in three minutes. Wow. Because he just, he had the money, bam, done, finished. And and that was it. You know, they took him at his word. Um, and you've got to remember that 2003 is a very different period. I mean, this is before social media. And so there were a few voices that said, well, hang on a second, this guy, to make this money this quickly, you know, there is, there's a story here. That was very much in the background. And everybody was happy to accept, that, you know, this guy coming from from nowhere yeah. so this this guy comes in 
And he spends over the next, you know, almost two decades, a billion and a half to turn Chelsea, who were, I mean, they weren't necessarily, you know, let's not say they were the bottom of the league when he turned, when he turned well, up. Well, actually, I want to ask you about that. What about Chelsea? What kind of a club were they in 2003? Well, 2003, they were doing too badly and they'd had a good few years of success, but that was unusual for Chelsea. I mean, when I was growing up, Chelsea were always a bit of a yo-yo club. You know, they'd get relegated to the second division, then up to the first division. But then, you know, they, they won the lottery and that's how many fans saw it. This rich guy, we don't know why he chose our club. Um, later, it came out that he chose it because Chelsea were on the verge of, of going bankrupt. They were days away from defaulting on a huge loan. And that loan was a subject of interest to Abramovich. Chelsea had borrowed a lot of money over the years. So Abramovich rescued them, and he got a good deal. But Abramovich isn't just a rich billionaire. He's part of a tightly knit circle of wealthy businessmen around Russian President Vladimir Putin, often called Russia's oligarchs. Abramovich himself has said he doesn't mind the label. I think that some like the title oligarch, others like the title member of parliament. Therefore, it doesn't bother me. So the question has always lingered over him. Was it all just out of love for the game? This is the $64,000 question. Even today, why did he buy Chelsea? We know that he wanted it quickly. We know he wanted a distressed asset. But why? Why did he want a distressed asset? Why did he want a Premier League football club? And I mean, there's been suggestions that he bought the club because he was one of Yeltsin's oligarchs. Boris Yeltsin being the first president of Russia as it transitioned to capitalism in the 1990s. To make a long story short, the oligarchs around Yeltsin made billions. Under Putin's presidency, their situation was a little more precarious. And when Vladimir Putin comes to power, he wants to bring the, the oligarchs to heel. And, you know, he'd seen other people who'd got rich in that period had been destroyed and so it was wise to have a kind of benign visibility and having your assets in different places. And football is a, is a place where money sloshes through and, you know, very few questions asked. One of the most interesting things, I think we can talk about this now. This is, going, this is produced in the US, I suppose we can. But it was Catherine Belton's book, uh, Putin's People, where in that book, one of Putin's inner circle who she interviews says that essentially... Vladimir Putin wanted Chelsea Football Club to be bought as a kind of forward operating base. Interesting. So that London's elite could be corruptible. Because we are we are very, I mean, I'm not part of the elite, but London's elite is incredibly corruptible. I mean, we, obviously people aren't bribing police officers and stuff, but you can get access to the British political system incredibly easily. Mm -hmm. And so she makes this claim and Abramovich took her to court because because of this libel system that we have, it's very, very difficult Here's Catherine Belton speaking about the lawsuit last year. Roman Abramovich announced he was suing me and HarperCollins for defamation. He was swiftly followed by three other Russian tycoons and then Rosneft, the Kremlin oil giant. Experienced media lawyers say they've never seen a legal onslaught of such scale and intensity. I think it was four or five of the closest oligarchs to Putin all sued her at the same time. Now, in the end... The book still stands. They had to make minor corrections to it. But this all happened before the Ukraine war. And hindsight, looking back at that, it just shows how enthralled we were to this 
Russian money to the super rich, to the billionaire class, and how much power they had, not just over football, but they had a chilling effect on freedom of speech within within media as well. So it's funny that you called it a $64,000 question because that sounds like so little money when we're talking about Abramovich. Mm. We are talking about a billion pounds, a billion and a half pounds to be exact, that he invested into Chelsea since 2003. What did the money buy? What did he get? Wages. All of that money goes out in wages. 70-90% of turnover in most clubs goes out, comes in, and they go straight out in in wages. Um, Alan Sugar, who, I mean, we call him probably Britain's Donald Trump, I suppose. He called it the prune juice effect in that, you know, you'd, it, it would go in one end and come out the other, <laughs> um, you know, almost straight away. And so, which is, I mean, that's quite a funny way of looking at it. And so, <laughs> so what he paid for, I mean, he's very successful. since Chelsea last won it back in 1955. A new name on the trophy. Chelsea are kings of Europe in Bayern's backyard. Since 2003, no English club has won more silverware. They won 21 titles. They are current European champions. That's incredible from a club to come from this yo-yo existence in the 80s with a decrepit stadium, some stands didn't even have any roofs, to being almost bankrupt, to then becoming one of the best, strongest clubs in, in Europe. He did transform their club into into something that I don't think even the most fervent Chelsea headhunter hooligan could ever, ever, ever dream would ever happen to their club, and, and he made it happen. So Abramovich's spending transformed English football. And in your book, you say the other clubs in the Premier League had to get rich or die trying. <laughs> Tell me about that transformation to the billionaires club of today. Yeah, well, this is so before this transition in 2003, you know, being a millionaire was enough. And in 2003, only billionaires could compete. There was an arms race. Everybody was out there looking for their for their billionaire to, to bankroll them and not ask for a return on their investment. That includes everyone from Taksin Shinawat, a former prime minister of Thailand, to the deputy prime minister of the United Arab Emirates, Sheikh Mansour bin Zayed. Human rights groups have raised concerns over both governments. Shinawat is the former owner of Manchester City. Sheikh Mansour took it over in a deal in 2008. The Abu Dhabi United Group transformed the club overnight into the world's richest football club. That was until 2021, with the takeover of Newcastle, led by the Public Investment Fund of Saudi Arabia. That's chaired by Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. Newcastle United, controversially sold to the Saudis, believed to have murdered a prominent journalist and repressing human rights at home. It took two years for that to be approved. I mean, there's just this incredible cast of characters who could have come... They're told they pass this test that we have called the owners and directors test, which is sometimes called the fit and proper persons test, which was probably the easiest test to pass in history because there was one alleged owner of, of Portsmouth, for instance, that no one ever met and no one saw as some Saudi investor. 
and people thought he didn't even exist. Yet he passed the owners and directors test. And so you've got this. Well, what, what can you tell me about the test? What kind of? Well, it's it's to check that you didn't have any convictions for fraud. You know, financial crimes. Um, but often a lot of it was in the UK. So even if you did horrific things outside of the UK, they often weren't considered. Later they changed it, but but a lot later. So you had this, you know, all these owners coming in, and fans were desperate. Fans were desperate to to replace their owners with an Abramovich-type character because they could not compete anymore. Then it created this free-for-all of the super-rich getting involved. And obviously that also attracted people who were completely unsuitable, morally as well as as financially. And because we have such a laissez-faire attitude to finance in general in Britain reflected in the English Premier League, then you're going to get some of these characters coming in. So it sounds like there is a blueprint So let's go back to the person that many people point to as the originator of this blueprint. He put Chelsea up for sale on March 2nd of this year. He was sanctioned on March 10th. As of this interview, what do things look like at the club right now? Who controls it? I mean, this is a very good question because I'm not sure anyone's particularly sure of it right now. Um, You know, the club, it hasn't been nationalized. It's been, it's a frozen asset. Um, What happens to that money? is still up in the air. Of course. Whether that's going to go to the British government, whether it's going to be kept, you know, in what's the phrase, escrow account, or like, you know, it's kept somewhere separate, mm-hmm. whether it's going to be donated to Ukrainian uh, charities or, you know, how, how that money's going to be used. We don't we don't know. It's, it's essentially a, a, a US institution, US bank has been given the job of asking for bids, for various bids. And they've we don't even know which bids have been submitted um, there, there may be a bid by from the Saudi media group. Perhaps there could be various uh, bids funded by U.S. hedge funds from uh, characters who have made money in NFL, NBA, basically a lot of American money. I mean, what what you get essentially is people who know how to run a business. Except football isn't a business, so they will make it a business. When it comes to the U.S. and European football, there's a little backstory here that's worth mentioning. The most money ever paid for a football team to date was by an American family, the Glazers. They took control of Manchester United in 2005 for 790 million pounds. And because of the way they did it, by borrowing hundreds of millions that the club and its fans would pay back, the fans were burning their effigies at the stadium. And it's still going on. Just last year, fans stormed the field in protest. The Glazers kind of epitomize the the kind of red in tooth and claw capitalism, which is totally at odds with the fan culture of of, of English and European football. I mean, they use the leveraged buyout, essentially not using their own money, but money raised against the, the asset they wanted to buy to purchase the club and control it and have taken huge amounts of money out of it. I mean, Manchester United is like an ATM. It makes huge amounts of money. Commercial revenue is off the charts around the world. Now, there are other American owners who've come in and turned fortunes around positively. They've saved the finances without sacrificing the culture, as the fans see it. But overall, the American approach is different. That's why its sports teams are ranked the most valuable in the world. All of the American owners are guys who think that how we've been running soccer is crazy. Like, look at NFL, look at NBA, that's how you make a profit. 
Why aren't you guys doing it? We're going to come in. We're going to bring in some kind of American economic rationalization. We're going to teach you what's what. And we're going to make a profit. And that would involve things like abolishing promotion and relegation. Um, having a kind of cartel that is the best club separated from everybody else. Um, a, a salary cap or some kind of negotiation on a salary cap. And we don't have that at the English Premier League. There is still the idea that, you know, if you finish third or fourth, you go to the Champions League. If you miss out, you know, tough. Um, but that isn't that isn't possible in the in the kind of business models that certainly American businessmen want to pursue. And that's what was going on last year with a new project called the European Super League that ultimately collapsed. It would have meant the biggest teams in Europe had guaranteed spots in the league and would no longer risk losing their place if they didn't perform. But James says when you look at the big picture there are problems bigger than commercialization. Having these billionaires who have nefar- often nefarious, unknown or nefarious reasons for buying your club. Um, in some ways, the Americans are at least, you know, it's, it's transparent, it's profit, it's profit. You know, at least that's upfront, you know, that's what it is. Others, it's much more opaque. You don't know um, why they're buying their club. But, you know, we've always been saying that when the billionaire is there, it's fine. It's when the carousel stops, what happens then? And this is what happens. I mean, you have somebody that no one could have predicted the Ukraine war like a year ago that this would this would happen. It's insane to think that this would happen. But, you know, some of us were saying, look, this this is always a possibility. When you have people involved in politics and, the, and they're in it for the wrong reasons, and they're connected to, to very dodgy people, then what they do reflects on them. Right. So you mentioned that the problem only comes when the carousel stops. The carousel has stopped now in Chelsea. It's gone from the top of the world to frozen accounts. And there were questions about whether it would even have enough money to finish the season. So without the billions from Abramovich, where does the team stand right now? Well, I mean, with if, if there wasn't a wealthy person sitting there ready to take over, there'd been a lot of trouble because... Chelsea were losing. I mean, essentially, he was subsidising the club to the tune of about a million pounds a week every year. That's how much money was being lost to make Chelsea the team that they were. So if 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 they now just went back, okay, well, let's let's uh, you know break even and you know cut cut our cloth accordingly, they would be screwed. To be to be frank, I mean, which is just so fascinating. My American brain can't quite comprehend as you were mentioning the differences between billionaires and what they want out of out of their teams. Yeah. And the reason for that is the reason that what that, that he was allowed to subsidize his his team, and that was still seen as a success. Well, I mean, it's it, yeah, I'm I'm with you. I'm as flabbergasted as you. I mean, for years we've been talked about this idea of financial doping, right? And one of the reasons why UEFA, um, which is the governing body of of European football, brought in a system called financial fair play, was to stop the likes of Abramovich and and Sheikh Mansour and also of QSI, the Qatar-owned investment vehicle that that had bought PSG, from distorting the game in such a way where losses didn't matter at all to you. You could just just lose money hand over fist, take all the best players, and completely destroy the competitive balance and integrity of the competition. Uh, the problem is that when they brought in these these rules, that these wealthy individuals and these wealthy states were almost impossible to 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 control because what, what what's UEFA? Okay, UEFA is a, a wealthy organization. Are you going to be able to come up go up against 
Abu Dhabi's government, the UAE's government. Of course not. They just have literally an endless supply of money and can get the most expensive lawyers known to man and can leverage whatever political power they can to get the result that they want. And it's the same will happen with the Saudis and to a certain extent also with, with Roman Abramovich and, and how the oligarchical system worked in, in Russia at the time. And those are the issues that weren't brought up back in 2003, but they are coming up in the sale. The British government has frozen the asset, so it decides who buys it. Abramovich does still have a say, too. So it raises the question, what exactly will the criteria be for the winning bid? Is there an ethical dimension to to what bid is going to be considered by the British government? Because they have to give the license. Will they say, actually, we can't really have another Saudi-owned club in the league because, you know, there is no real separation between the economy and the state. You know, there is no... A bid that could be not connected to the government. So do we want that? Do we want another, you know, Chinese investor or Russian investor who, you know, we're going to have to have this conversation again 10 years down the line? And we don't know. And I, I suspect not. I suspect it's going to go to the highest bidder and we're going to have all these questions all over again and no one's going to have learned a damn thing from any of it. So James, final question Take me to the field. You are a fan. You're taking your kids out. You're out with your friends. At the end of the day, does this affect you and your enjoyment of the beautiful game? Um, I mean, that's a really good question because it's, it's, a, it's a conversation I have a lot of Newcastle fans. One of the things I think a lot of people like me and a lot of other journalists are struggling with, you know, Saudi state, given some of the horrific human rights abuses taken over the club, was how little people really cared about that. Whoever owned it, it didn't have any effect. They couldn't change it. You know, this is my club. This is my family's identity, my identity. I want to go back to being proud of my club again. And that is a very, very, very uh, strong feeling, even amongst people who in day-to-day life would would have uh, views that would be completely at odds with that. So in a way, it, it doesn't. It doesn't affect it. But of course, when you bring this this level of money into the game of ticket prices, what the stadium looks like, what the game looks like, it does change. English football, I think, is what's great about it has been it's 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 a it's a beautiful spectacle. It could be a brutal spectacle. It could be a beautiful spectacle, but it's one where the supporters are part of it and they're part of it because they're connected to the team and they're connected to that club. And the more money that comes in, and this isn't I don't say as foreign billionaires as something that, you know, like somehow British billionaires are, be- are better. I don't. The billionaire class live in their own land above everybody else. They're their own nationality almost. They might have all made their money in very different ways, but they all end up in the same place, in the same cities, buying the same types of property, sending their children to the same schools. And they are detaching the game piece by piece, club by club, from from the fans who make the the product that they want to sell. And so eventually they're going to kill the goose that lay the golden egg. And I, I sincerely think that that's, that's where we're heading. It's, I mean, you can't regulate billionaires in civil life, in political life. Why do we think that we're going to be able to regulate them in, in footballing life? And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Alexandra Locke with Amy Walters, Nagin Oliai, Ruby Zaman, Priyanka Tilve, Ney Alvarez, and me, Malika Bilal. 
Our sound designer is Alex Roldan. Our engagement producers are Aya Al-Milek and Munira Al-Dusari. And our executive producer is Stacey Samuel. We'll be back on Monday. <laughs>